This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Before I start, I want to bring my teacher into the room. This is Shugen Roshi in particular. I think Sashin. I think Sashin um, reminds me of all of those times, all of those hours upon hours upon hours that I sat, you know, in the same room with him, that I went in to do face-to-face -face teaching with him, that I heard his bell ringing me out, that I heard his bell inviting me to go deeper. And I, I hope, I, I pray, I invoke my own wish that um, I honor even a little bit of the work that he did with me, continues to do with me in a different way um, with you. May I, um, may I repay even a little bit of that grace. <clears throat> mm, there's a story <clears throat> by Karen Russell, uh, American writer, called Bog Girl. And it's an odd story. Uh, Karen Russell writes, mm, I'm not sure what to call it. I mean, one of her books is called Vampires in the Lemon Grove, just to give you a sense. And Bog Girl appeared in The New Yorker some years ago. And um, it's a, an Irish boy, teenager really, who finds a girl in the bog. And I, I think this is, this is it's true that in certain bogs, um, there's some combination of compounds that bodies remain preserved. In a slightly different uh, way, that happens here in Mexico. You've probably heard of the mummies of, of Mexico. And they're, you know, it's not, a, it's not a body. It really is a mummy. And they're pretty horrible. <laughs> um, they're just kind of... Um, striking, let's say, to look at. But I, I, I remember going to see the mummies. I was a child myself. And, you know, it's Mexico, so it's, it's um, the way they set it up is, is like the, the museum is kind of like a hangar. And this is completely a sidetrack, but I want to tell you about the mummies. <laughs> um, it's like this hangar, and so you're, you're, you're going like through a tunnel in a sense. And the mummies are in these glass cases. 
And there's adults and there's males and females and babies and who've died of natural causes, who have not died of that natural causes, um, etc. And you know, and the color is kind of it's kind of brownish. Um, and right as you, and so so you you're looking at you know I don't know maybe two dozen or more uh, glass cases of these mummies, and then you come out, and then they have these these candies in exactly the shape and the color of these mummies. <laughs> I mean, who thought of that? And you're supposed to buy them and eat them and enjoy them, <laughs> I guess. It's very strange. Um, this is not that, you know, the, 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 these bodies in the box are, are very, uh, you know, they're not intact for obvious reasons, but they're, they're pretty well preserved. And so, so the story begins with this teenager finding this, this girl in the bog. And he becomes enamored of her. She's very beautiful. And so he pulls her out and takes her home. And for the next few months, he lives with this bog girl to his mom's chagrin, his mom's horror, really. Um, and, you know, they sit her at the, at the table and they have lunch. And, of course, the girl is just sitting there. She can't speak. She can't do anything. And this boy becomes more and more enamored of, of the bog girl until the day when she wakes up. She comes to life due to his love and sees him and is completely enamored and turned of, of you know, all of this, this love and care and, and attention that she's received over these many months. It, that brings her to life. And she wants to give it back and so starts to walk towards him and he completely freaks out and runs out of the house. And the mother realizes, okay, he's come to his senses and convinces him to return the girl to the bog, which he promptly does. Now, why am I bringing this up? <laughs> why am I bringing it up during Sashin? Because I've been thinking about loneliness and I've been thinking about the ways that we do to try to assuage it. And all the many, I think, largely ineffective ways in which we try to, well, first make it go away. And if we can't, buffer it. And if we can't change it in some form. And because we've been sitting together in, in silence, mostly, um, I was just feeling again very strongly the, the medicine, the medicine that being with yourself in such an intimate way can be. Um, and I was thinking, I, I also with me in, in the room were my friends from here. I, I have now a, a very wonderful community, small community, but a community of friends. And I was feeling, you know, just some of them and, and, and in relationship to this, you know, to, to loneliness. And, and I was trying to feel in myself, try to figure out because some of them don't practice, most of them don't practice 
and yet I, I see their ways of reaching um, for the thing, the person, the person, the the experience that will that will mitigate, that will mitigate that loneliness. And I was trying to think of how to how to speak of what Zazen does specifically for this, you know, to work with loneliness, how to, how to explain to someone, how to express to someone that being so completely alone with yourself can show you the, the almost logical absurdity of loneliness, right? That as long as we stay on the surface of our lives, and as long as we turn outward to look for those um, things or places, people of comfort, that it does get alleviated for a little bit, but that the real cure, um, which is not a, a, a the best way to describe it, but the, but the real medicine for this is, is to realize what aloneness truly is. Like that Dr. Bronner's soap, right? All one. That it actually really is that. That that is the truth of each of our lives. You know, but if I was to say to someone, well, you know, just be by yourself for a little bit. You know, would they believe me? That that is, in fact, the way to deal with what a number of writers have been reading, you know, over the last few months, or really since the pandemic, a number of writers speaking of this pandemic of loneliness. You know, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean to imply that just by sitting down and being still and following your breath, all of a sudden everything is going to be great and you're never going to feel lonely again. But what I am suggesting is that there is something that happens with that closeness, in that closeness, that can't really happen as long as our attention is turned outward. And that we are social beings, and I think probably nine out of ten of us will still look for that connection, that relationship, that interaction, and that is wonderful. That is, that is wonderful. I mean, we, each of us could just sit at home and do sashin, just be with ourselves, be with our breath, be with the question, and yet we do it together, of course. So it doesn't mean that you never relate to somebody else. But I, I, I think of, you know, and, and now more than ever, the ease with which we can externalize. And then we can look for that, that, that quick hit from a phone, especially. The like, the little interaction, the text, the ping, just whatever it is. 
And I've been, you know, because I didn't used to have a phone before, and now I do, I, I feel that, and I feel that difference. And, you know, the nice thing is that in, a, in the context of a weekend like this, of Sushin, um, I turned it off, but I had to use it a couple of times. And, and I was watching, and I was feeling that it, it's a, I was going to say impulse, but it's, It's like an energy, it's like a hunger, really. It's like a hunger. And then I was reflecting on how this thing that we're most ravenous for, that connection, we're also most terrified of. That in moments when something happens and the walls drop away and we really feel that closeness, how frightening that can be. And so I think the practice of, of cultivating a true aloneness does require great courage. You have to be willing to, to, to go through that, the, the craving, right? the reaching, the stopping, the holding, the resting in yourself. Because although it's true that we can find comfort in some things, that ultimately that, um, I think strength is the best way that I would describe it, that, that strength, that resilience. You know, what I, what I often uh, talk about of, uh, as standing on your own two feet. Of course, no one else can do for you. And no one else can give it to you. And in my years of practice, I remember being at the monastery and being surrounded by people, right? 30 people day in and day out, up to 100 or more people on a weekend. I was with people all the time. And for years, I would say probably 10, 15 years, I felt lonely. And some of that time I was in a relationship, in an intimate relationship, and I felt lonely. And I've been reflecting about that, on that. And then one day, I didn't. And I don't think the shift was just like that. I think something happened gradually over time. But I remember noticing the absence of loneliness. And I didn't feel it again until I went to New York City. And I was again surrounded by people and I was living with people. I wasn't close to them per se, but you know, we got along well. And I was constantly in crowds of people and I felt lonely.
And what I attribute that to now is something subtle and something that pains me a little bit to, to admit, but I think it's true, which is that I was looking for something from them. The people that I was surrounded by, that I was close to, I wanted something from them. I wanted admiration, I wanted attention, I wanted, um, well, at the very least, attention, right? That somebody see me and pay attention to me. But I don't mean that in a, in a profound way. I just wanted to be validated, which again, all of us want. And yet I also acknowledge that when I don't need that, when I am, when I fully cover the ground upon which I stand, and I really do feel that, then any interaction is a boon. How wonderful to spend time with you. And if I don't have it, how wonderful to spend time with myself. That was the difference. That was the difference. And You know, and I think in all sorts of relationships with family, in intimate relationships, in friendships, you know, there, there is always some element of wanting something, expecting something from someone. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, maybe there are people who have very pure interactions with others. I think for most of us, there is an element of, you know, we want something. Sure. But I think it's that relinquishment of our power, of our strength, that is what drains us and what creates a sense of lack. That, that poem that I've quoted a number of times in the past and somebody shared with me some years ago, also kept coming up for me during Sashin, the St. Francis and the Sao, and those lines of, you have to reteach a thing its loveliness. And how true that is, and how necessary that is, and how possible that is. If you didn't learn it from somebody else, if you were not told you were lovely, by your parents, by your peers, by your partner, then you have to teach yourself. And it's not unreasonable to expect that kind of attention from someone else, but you can't wait for it. And I think that's my point sitting on your seat, standing on your ground, you, re you teach yourself that loveliness. And then lo and behold, it gets reflected. Life is a wonderful way of working in that respect, that when that is coming from you, then it starts to be reflected everywhere. But then as 
Daito Roshi used to say all the time, so somebody praises you, oh, thank you so much. Somebody says, oh, you're awful, criticizes you, okay. It doesn't, it, okay. That's up to them, it's not up to me. I mean, maybe there's something I need to do, but you understand my point. And so that phrase, you know, that no creature ever fails to cover the ground upon which it stands, is always true. But it's rarely true for each of us. And so we have to discover that it is true. And it always was. So a Buddha nature is the potential for Buddhahood, the potential for that awakened nature to be realized and manifested. It is also the expression of that Buddha nature, right? the expression of that Buddhahood. And so trees and rocks and animals, as far as we know, are fully, who they are fully cover the ground do not doubt themselves. They just fulfill their being completely. And because of the way that we're wired, we actually need to make that connection and then live it. So sometimes you have to reteach the thing as loveliness so that it blossoms of self-blessing from within. I love that phrase too. So that it, it blossoms or it blooms, I can't remember, from self-blessing. What does it mean to bless yourself? And we don't normally use that word in Zen. But just Keep that, keep that question close. What does it mean to bless yourself? Maybe that's enough. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.